Please join me in the pleasure of reading scripture in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint to this duty, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenes, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they sat before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Bill. It's good to see you all this Mother's Day. Uh, looking forward, to, I sent my sent my mother some flowers yesterday, and then I'm uh, going to give her a call today and probably tell her, regale her with stories of my childhood from my perspective, which is always different than her perspective. In her world, I was a very ornery boy, but in my perspective, I was an angel. So we, we try to reconcile that when we get together. Uh, this past week, I, along with a couple other men, attend, attended the pastor's conference at Parkside Church in the Cleveland area, and uh, I was encouraged to remain focused on the preaching and the teaching of the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a very encouraging time. I'm honestly still processing through what I learned. I don't think I've quite, quite gotten there yet because uh, I'm going to open the sermon by saying, uh, this is a dumpster. That's, seriously, that's my opening line. This is a dumpster. Not just any dumpster. It's our church's dumpster. You may not see it or give it much attention, but it is there. You can verify that when you leave today. Now, this dumpster used to be smaller, but we filled it up so frequently that we had to call our waste management company and ask for the next size larger one, and they were happy to oblige for a fee, and they did. At one time... We had the dumpster emptied once a week, but now we have it emptied twice a week. We used to call in the summertime when the students weren't here. We used to call and say, eh, knock it down to once a week for the summer. And then in the, when school resumed, we would call and say, okay, back to two times a week. We got trash coming out of our ears over here. Uh, but now we fill it up uh, twice a week all year round. Even at two dumps a week, we managed to fill it up so we have this overflow area behind these doors. And if the dumpster gets full, we put the trash behind these doors. 
until the time when the dumpster gets emptied, and then somebody carries that trash around and puts it in the dumpster. See, it looks like this. Oh, wait. Oh, man. Somebody forgot to tie off their trash bag. It's just, I don't know why, but I opened up these things to take this picture, and this is what I saw. So, of course, you know me, I can't, I can't take it, so I had to clean it up. So somebody's got to clean that up, and then somebody's got to remind everybody, because we have multiple people that take trash out. Sometimes students take trash out, that they have to tie the bag off first before they put it in there. Otherwise, this will happen. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I got finished cleaning that up, my hand smelled delicious. <laughs> Combination of yogurt and cheese sticks that were several days old. Now, uh, the doors on this overflow area were not always there, and um, somebody got in contact with Pastor Brad. Pastor Brad called a contractor, and that contractor repaired the brickwork, brickwork on the surround and also installed those doors. And we actually gave a fair amount of thought to this latch. We were going to lock this latch, these doors, uh, until we remembered that nobody really wants to steal our trash. And so we agreed on this farm-style hitch that, or farm-style uh, latch that can be operated with one hand. It's great. Now, you may be asking yourself, I know you, you probably don't care. You're probably like, get to the sermon and let's go home. But uh, you probably are wondering, why don't we just stack the dumpster full, like make it, like flop the doors open and just stack it up until the, the truck comes? I mean, why don't we just do this instead of putting it in that little doored-in area? Well, here's the reason, because every time we do that, uh, by our contract, the dumpster company can charge us a $200 fee. And they take a nice picture of it, too. Uh, if that ever happens, they'll take a picture of it and send it to us and say, look, you left the thing open. You, you stacked the trash in there too deep, $200. So we have to communicate to everyone that the lids have to be able to close all the way every time we use the dumpster. And, and look, there's a bonus here. We get these nifty prop rods that you can prop the dumpster open if you're going to put a lot of stuff in there. Now, every once in a while, you go out to the dumpster and you'll find stuff in there that just doesn't really belong in a church dumpster. Like you might go out there and find, oh, I don't know, a couch. And so we suspect that there are people from the community that are dumping things in our dumpster. And so we put this nifty sign up that says, this property is being protected by video surveillance. No dumping, $500 fine. Now, do we have a camera pointed in the general vicinity of the dumpster? Yes, we do. Can that camera tell the difference between a Christmas tree and a human being? No, it cannot. <laughs> so have we ever collected the $500 fee? We have not. We have not collected the $500 fee. But hopefully the sign would deter someone from dumping something in there. Uh, uh, but every once in a while. Now, you guys are welcome to dump some stuff in there, it, provided you call the church office and make sure first, because we, we know when our heavy periods of trash are and when our light periods of trash are. So if you have something big you want to get rid of, just call the church office and, and they'll tell you that you can't do it. So it'll be fine. <laughs> now, last thing I'll share with you about the dumpster, because I know it's getting old. Um, but, uh, renting a dumpster is kind of like signing up for internet or cell phone service, meaning that the price just kind of steadily goes up over time. You know, fuel surcharges, these surcharges, those surcharges. And so every once in a while, you've got to call around to different trash companies, and you've got to get some competitive bids, uh, otherwise the price will get out of control. And so recently, uh, 
someone called and, and checked some bids, and we were able to cut our monthly fee in half. In half. And, and we have to just do, we just know that we have to set our calendar, and every couple of years or so, we, we do this, and uh, it really pays off. Now, why am I telling you the tale of the dumpster at Delaware Bible Church? It's probably because it is the case that very few people think about what it takes to keep this place running smoothly and what it takes to be good stewards of the gifts that God has given us. Our business manager, Jelaine Van Gordon, uh, she must assess the trash needs of our ministry, secure bids, sign contracts, work with Pastor Brad, our pastor of outreach administration, to make sure that the dumpster surround is what we need, communicate with the entire staff about how to properly use the dumpster, and regularly check prices to ensure that we are being good stewards of the money that God has entrusted us with. And that's just the dumpster. And I didn't even give you all the details about the dumpster. What I'm saying is, is that, you know, our ministry can be a very complex thing. This morning in our text, in Acts chapter 6, the church is growing. Anytime an organization grows, there's going to be challenges. There's going to be complexities. And when you have, when you have a small business, say, of three people, one of those three people can make it their side job to process payroll for the three of you. But when you have 300 people in your organization, it's probably going to be the case that one or more persons of the 300 are going to make it their full-time job to make sure that every dollar, nickel, penny is accounted for and everybody's tax and withholdings for insurance and all that's cared for in processing payroll. In our text this morning, the apostles teach us a valuable lesson about dealing with the increasing complexity that comes along with growth. That's our big question. What should be done when the main mission of the church is being compromised by problems associated with growth? So let's just dive in to the text. By the way, this is a I consider this to be a very impressive text of Scripture. There's a lot compressed into seven verses. Uh, when I first read this, uh, you know, when I first approached this this week, I said, oh yeah, I know this passage. This is about deacons. Uh, this is the church calling the first deacons to service in the church. And I want to I challenge your thinking as, I, as this text challenged mine. That's not the main thrust of this passage. Deacons are certainly, I think, in view. Widows are in view. But neither one of those two things, I think, is the, is the main point. So let's get into it. Point number one I want to bring to your attention is growing pains can hinder the mission of the church. Growing pains can hinder the mission. Verse 1 and 2, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 <clears throat> summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. The text makes it very clear. The number of people, the number of Christ followers is increasing. It is also likely that uh, the widows that are in view here are the types of widows that are referred to. It doesn't say it explicitly, but the types of widows that are referred to in 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16. In, in other words, uh, these are what Paul, I think, referred to as true widows. These are women who, are not, who have not only lost their husbands, but they're older and therefore either undesirous or not undesirous. They don't want to remarry. These women don't want to remarry or they're, 
and they're maybe too old to work or, or get gainful employment. Secondly, they're destitute. There's no family to care for them, no next of kin to take them in. And number three, they're of good character. Uh, and what I, I think the text in 1 Timothy means by that is that they're, they are actually living their lives in such a way that is of, of benefit to the church. They're encouraging others, praying for others, serving others, and so on, and not a detriment to the church, not busybodies and causing divisions and strife. But again, even though widows are mentioned in this text, uh, I, I don't think that's the main point. But, but just on that note of widows, it says that there's a complaint that arose from the Hellenists against the Hebrews. So the, the setting here is Jerusalem. It's the heart. It's the capital. It's the main city of Israel. So it's, it's also this, where the temple is. So it's the, it's the seat of not only their uh, government, but it's the seat of their religious beliefs. And so apparently within the city of Jerusalem, some Jewish widows had come to faith in Jesus Christ, but also some non-Jewish, some, some Greek, some Hellenist folks, widows, had come to Christ. And as they were trying to take care of these women, the complaint rose up by the Hellenists, the non-Jewish widows or people that represented the non-Jewish widows saying, hey, y'all are taking care of the Jewish widows and you're given, you're neglecting, you're paying short shrift to the, to the Greek, the non-Jewish widows. The 12 disciples got together with the full number of the disciples, and I think that's what's, what's in view here is Luke is talking about the 12, Jesus' 12 disciples, you know, the ones that followed him, minus Judas plus Matthias. The 12 got together with all of the believers. They had kind of a church meeting, maybe. They were still at the point where they could do that. They had a church meeting, and they talked about it, and it appears, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but it appears that they all kind of made this, these decisions together. They got together and they made it clear that, the 12 made it clear that it's not desirable that we should give up the preaching of the Word of God to care for this need. Now, I want to be careful here and say, I don't want you to walk out of here saying that there's, there's the disciples on this level, they're the super spiritual guys who are preaching the Word, and then there's people that wait on tables. I don't think they're saying that at all. They're simply referring to the fact, I think, a couple of things. Number one is, in 1 Corinthians 12, we're given a picture of the body of Christ that all parts are needed. There's people that are good at preaching and teaching. There's people that are good at administration and service. And we need all of those people to carry out the overall mission of the church. And what is that mission? The mission of the church is to make disciples, Right? to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. You get the idea. So teaching is a big part of making disciples, and they're not going to give that up to care for this need. There's an inescapable reality of life and that's this, that the larger the group, the more complexity that will be introduced. So the question that's really being confronted here in this very beginning of Acts 6 is this, how are the disciples of Jesus, how are the followers of Jesus going to deal with this complexity? 
Are, they, are the 12 going to pull off of their main mission and go and form a group, working group, and work through how are we going to care for the widows? Or are they going to find out, are they going to figure out a way to care for this need while they're focused on the main mission of the church? And this is absolutely huge if we think about how a church should be structured, how it should be run. Uh, this passage is actually very important, I would argue. By the way, this isn't the first time that something like this has come up. Uh, in Exodus chapter 18, you know, Moses has, by God's mighty hand, his outstretched arm, he has led the Israelites out of Egypt and they're out in the wilderness. And, and we, there's this scene that sets up where people are, the Jewish people are bringing their disputes, uh, kind of their court cases, so to speak, like I was wronged by so-and-so, they sold me a horse, they told me the horse was healthy. That's a bad example. But, you know, they, they told me something was of such and such quality. I gave them the money. They gave me the item, and it's a piece of garbage. And so these people were coming to Moses at Exodus 18, and the text makes it very clear that they were, that not only was Moses being worn out all day from settling, trying to settle these disputes or judge these disputes, but the people were worn out as well. Let me try to illustrate that. Back in Back in, uh, in the town that I did my first job out of college, uh, it was a factory. And uh, sometimes at a factory, when I was a project manager, and, and sometimes at a factory, you need to have something special fabricated. And usually that's pretty easy, but it does get kind of complicated when you start putting together exotic metals like stainless steel or you're trying to weld two dissimilar metals together, something like that. We had a maintenance department, and those guys were good at what they did, but they weren't that good. I mean, that, it's a pretty exotic thing to weld uh, some, some exotic metals together. But there was a guy, there was a fella down the street from the factory who had a small welding shop. Imagine like a small metal building with a, maybe two or three overhead doors and some man doors. It was Owens Machine and Welding. And Rudy Owens was like a welding savant. He was a genius. You give him something to weld together and it, he'll do it and it'll work and it'll be structurally sound. He was just very good. The problem is, Rudy was a really good welder and a very poor administrator. And so, you would go into his shop, he had two or three guys working there, including him, and in order to get Rudy to do something for you, you had to stand there next to him, he's, he's got his helmet down, and he's welding, so you're trying to look away, and you had to wait for him to, to pop up his helmet and say, Rudy, 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 I got a question for you, and Rudy was good. He would oftentimes flip that helmet back down and keep welding and ignore you. Because he had a lot of work to do, and everybody was trying to pester him. Because I was not the only one in the shop trying to get his attention. The, the perimeter of the shop seemed to be oftentimes lined with four, five, half a dozen people trying to get Rudy's attention to try to get him to weld something, to show him some plans for something they wanted fabricated or something. He did not have a person in charge of, of organizing that. It was him. And so I knew how to play the game, and nobody else did. I knew that you had, to, you had to stand right next to the man. You had to wait for him to stop welding. You had to wait for his helmet to pop up. And then you had to jump in front of him and get his attention, like, Rudy, can you weld this together? And, of course, he would, oh, okay. And he'd come over to his bench and do some voodoo magic or something, I don't know, and then weld it. And then hand it to you, Rudy, how much do I owe you? And Ten bucks. No receipt, you know. So I'd go into my wallet and give him $10 cash because he wasn't about to process a credit card. You get the idea, right? 
Well, people will get mad at me because I jumped in front of the line and I'm like, I'm not, there is no line. This is, this is every man for himself in this place, you know. That's what I envision when I think of Moses. And his, of course, if you read in Exodus 18, his father-in-law Jethro came to him and said, you're doing this all wrong. For the big disputes, yeah, you can get involved in that. For, for the minor things, you need to delegate men to be over the 50s and the 100s and the 10s or whatever it, it says in Exodus 18. And he did that. He took his father-in-law's advice and he put some structure into the system and everyone was served well. And he did not wear himself out. So hold that in our minds as we move through the text here. Growing pains can hinder the mission of the church. Second thing we read is growing pain should be handled in a way to preserve the mission. Verses 3 and 4, therefore, so again, this is the, the 12, and now they've summoned all of the disciples of Jesus, right, the church, and they say this, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Remember, a lot of these guys, the 12, they're not from Jerusalem, they're from Galilee, Right? And a lot of these new believers, they're from Jerusalem. So they're, they're appealing to the congregation. Pick out from among yourselves uh, seven men of good repute, filled, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Again, we, we understand this text to be the church calling its first deacons. They're going to take over and oversee this ministry to the widows. If you want to read about the qualifications of a deacon, you can go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Right after it talks about the qualifications of elders, it talks about the qualifications of, of deacons. But in this text, let's confine ourselves to this text, it says three things. They have to have a good reputation. Okay? It, it, I, I need to say this. Based on circumstances that I've been going through in my life and, and whatever, uh, can I just say this? The, the, who is responsible for building your reputation? You are, right? The way you conduct yourself will give, will let people know, are, are you a person that can be counted on or not? Are you a person that is going to get the job done or not? Are you a person who's trustworthy with sensitive information? Are you trustworthy with money uh, to transport funds or whatever? Are you a trustworthy? You build that reputation. We're looking for men of good reputation. We're also looking for, secondly, men that are filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, they have to be believers. The church is not going to outsource this, these, this sensitive ministry to unbelievers. Why? Well, I think we can all agree that whatever the task is around the church, uh, you know, you could be the person in charge of the dumpster, and let's say that the dumpster is getting overfilled routinely and we're taking that $200 hit almost monthly. And so what do you got to do? You've got to communicate to the entire, to everybody who puts garbage in that dumpster. Those lids have to be closed. How you communicate. Are you going to communicate in an angry and demeaning way? Hey, idiot, what are you doing? You're costing us $200. Put, make sure the lids close all the way. Are you going to communicate that in a God honoring way. Just letting you know, we take a $200 hit every time this happens. So we, we've got to make sure, to be good stewards, we've got to make sure that those doors are closed. And uh, if I see you, I'm going to dock your pay. I'm just teasing. Maybe. Just Pastor Brad. 
I love Pastor Brad. We had a great week. So they have to be believers. And the third thing they have to be is filled with wisdom. They have to know how to live skillfully. They have to be tested men, right? They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They've got a good reputation. They're believers. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13 talks about this, right? Like, beloved, do not be surprised that the fiery trial comes upon you to test you. Uh, you can tell a lot. It's hard to tell a lot about a person when everything's going well. But you can tell a lot about a person when they're going through a trial. And so we, what do they want? They want guys that are, are of good character. They're, uh, they're believers. And they're filled with wisdom. I just want to stop here and say uh, something, especially to our younger folks. There's a, there's a misunderstanding out there, and perhaps your parents have shared this with you, and perhaps they have not, which is, which is this. Um, the, the misunderstanding that's out there is that if you go from here, if you go from high school to college, you get a, a college degree, and then you go out in the, into the workforce, that you're, you're trained and ready to go. And I want to just tell you that you're not. You're going you're gonna to be tested you're going to have to show that you can handle adversity. And so in our culture today that is so, so wanting to avoid adversity, adversity to the point that they want to limit, there are folks out there that want to limit free speech. You can't say these things because it might offend me. We, you will do yourself well to learn how to, do, to live your life God's way in the midst of adversity. When somebody says something about you, when somebody slanders you, how are you going to handle that? When somebody, uh, when a project doesn't go your way, how are you going to handle that? And so I would say while you're still young and being tested or still young and learning to, to, to put yourself in situations where you will be tested. It'll be good for you. It'll be good for you. Okay. Uh, so they say in verse 4 that they're going to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. Why? Why do they say these things? Why do they say, look, we're not going to pull off of what we're doing? Well, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's been my experience that when I come across uh, someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ and they're struggling, one of four things is generally true. Either, number one, they don't know what God's Word says. They need teaching. Or they've forgotten what God's Word says on a matter. They need reproof. Or they're not living according to God's Word correctly. They've, they've misunderstood God's Word. They know it. But they've misunderstood it, and so they're not living it out correctly. They need correction. Or uh, they know what God's Word says, but they just have no clue on how to implement that in their life. They need training in righteousness, right? And this takes time. It takes time to, to assess what's going on in someone's life and to try to be a minister of the Word of God to them. You have to know the Word of God yourself. You've probably had to have some experience in applying it yourself and then you have to, there's, there's reading, there's study, there's getting to know the person, the situation, and properly applying the Word of God, and that takes time and it takes effort. 
And so it's, if we're going to live our lives God's way, we're going to need, within the body of Christ, some people who've devoted themselves to the ministry of the Word and, and prayer. We'll talk more about that in a second. I, I don't need to tell you, maybe I do, that what I see, I, I try to pay attention to, to what's going on in the wider church, not just Delaware Bible Church, but the wider church in the world. And disinformation, misinformation, a misunderstanding of God's word is constantly creeping into other churches and other works. And they're being directed or they're, because of this misinformation, they're pulling themselves off of the ministry of the word and prayer and they're going full bore in a different direction. And it's causing big problems within the church, within our Christian colleges, universities, seminaries. I can't stress this enough this morning. We need, for, for those that God has gifted the church, Ephesians 4 talks about that he's gifted the church with pastors and teachers, evangelists. We need to let these men, these folks, do their work and not, not force them to get preoccupied with other things. It's also the value of prayer. The value of prayer. Why is this important? Prayer is important because in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7, it says, Paul's saying, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. In other words, when you minister the word of God to someone, that doesn't automatically mean they're going to get it. That doesn't automatically mean they're going to live according to it. God has to do a work in their lives. And so ever since Jesus died on the cross and that, that veil was torn in two, we no longer have to go to God through a priest bringing a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. We can now go to God directly in prayer and ask him, Father, I'm going to be diligent and faithful to present your word as clearly and as, as understandably as I can, but you need, you need to change this person's heart. We don't have that ability. So these ministries, the word of God and prayer, are critical in the life of the church. Now, I just want to say this before I move on. I, I did an experiment, um, and I went into my Bible, and I said to myself, if this is true, then we ought to see this pattern. If the ministry of the Word of God in prayer is so important, we ought to be able to see this in the life of Jesus. I mean, after all, he's our great example. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to read through one of the Gospels, and I'm going to see and I picked Luke because Luke wrote Acts, and there's a connection there. So I started reading through Luke, and man, I couldn't believe it. So let me just tell you, uh, just quick, I confined myself to one sheet of paper. I didn't want to get too, but here are a bunch of examples of Jesus focused like a laser beam on the ministry of the Word and prayer. When he was a boy, Luke 2, after three days they found him, his parents did, in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Even as a boy, what's Jesus focused on? The ministry of the word. He's, he's talking about the Bible uh, to these uh, people in the temple. In the temptation of Jesus in Luke, the beginning of his ministry, Luke 4, he's tempted by the evil one, by Satan, three times. And three times he does what? He quotes Scripture. He doesn't quote Jonathan Edwards. He doesn't pull a logical argument out of his hat. 
He says, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Even to Satan, Jesus is involved in the ministry of the word. Uh, Luke 4.42 talks about him praying. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. The people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, Okay, presumably in this passage in Luke 4, 42 and 44, they want him to stay because he's, he's healed some people and they want to keep that ball rolling. And so he went out to a desolate place, presumably to pray, and they came to him and they wanted him to stay. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea, which is the region around Jerusalem. See Jesus' focus. Luke 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So he's, he's there preaching the word. There's others. Many of Jesus' healing episodes begin like this. Luke 6, 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man came whose right hand was withered. Okay, Jesus performed a healing, but in what context? What, what was he out doing that day? He was teaching in the synagogue, the word of God. In terms of prayer, Luke 6, 12, in those days he went out to, to the mountain to pray, and, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Have you ever thought about what, what would have to be on your mind to pray to God all night? I worked for the first, when I entered ministry, my senior pastor was Dave. Uh, oh, man. I can't believe Dave and Linda Tracy. Childs, man, my 49-year-old brain is addled. David Linda Childs, he's retiring uh, right now from Appalachian Bible College. He was their dean of students after he left that ministry, and he's retiring uh, from that. But uh, Dave Childs told me the story about how he, had, as a young pastor, decided that he was going to be like Jesus, and he was going to stay up all night and pray, all night. And he had to preach the next morning at church. Well, suffice it to say that the elders of that church, Pastor Childs, wake up. He missed church because <laughs> he fell asleep. I think he might have held out till 3 a.m. But Jesus prayed all night, right? Luke 19, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. But you've corrupted it. You've made it into a den of robbers. In Luke 9, Jesus sends out his disciples. Why? To proclaim the kingdom of God, the ministry of, the, of God, of the word of God. And then I found it interesting, just to wrap this part up, I found it interesting that oftentimes when Jesus had something physical that needed to be done, he delegated it. So in the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples came to him and they said, hey, look, these people are hungry. They got nowhere to go. You're going to have to get them some food. What did Jesus say? You remember? He said, you give them something to eat. So they went and 
rustled up a little bit of fish and loaves and stuff, and Jesus blessed it, and then he gave it to them to distribute. Of course, they did. Then he asked them to collect, and they collected 12 basketfuls. I mean, even in Luke 19, when Jesus is making the triumphal entry, or he's coming into Jerusalem on the, on the back of the donkey, he sent his disciples in to go fetch the donkey. He was focused on the ministry of the word and prayer. Okay, these last two points are going to go quick, so buckle up. Number three, changes made to preserve the mission should be acceptable to the church. Verse five, when they said, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselytite of Antioch. That just means that Nicholas had the distinct honor of he was from Antioch, and he had came to be a Jewish convert. He was a Gentile. He had become to be a Jewish convert before he then became a convert to Jesus Christ. So he had quite the spiritual journey. And these they set before the apostles and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. We see a couple of things here. Agreement. Uh, again, the, the apostles are from the region of of. Galilee, which is way up north from where they're at in Jerusalem. And so the church was involved in the selection of these men. So they, they, they reached agreement. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 talks about that we ought to, when we set our mind on the things of Christ and we, when we saturate our minds with God's word, we will oftentimes agree on what we ought to do. And so talks about that. Ephesians 4 talks about that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What we also see in this passage is recognition. The, the 12 laid their hands on them, and this is a way to publicly say, these guys are fit for this duty. We're putting them into service to take care of this widow, this widow ministry. They're going to oversee it. They're going to administer it. 1 Timothy 4.14 says, Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This way the community would know these are the seven that are taking this over. This, I, I, I shared with you this past week that Alistair, we went to Alistair Begg's church, Parkside Church, and we went to this conference. And during the Q&A time, Pastor Begg was very candid. He's been at that church for a long time. I want to say it's 30, over 30 years, maybe 39 He's been there for a long time. And uh, somebody asked him a question about how he gets done everything that he gets done, and he's, he was just very candid, and he said, I went to the elders in year four of my ministry. This is Alistair Begg talking, and he told them, I can't do what you want me to do. Uh, I, I'm trying to preach the word of God. I'm trying to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer and do these things. And at the same time, I'm trying to be the CEO of a very large organization and administer all these. He says, I can't do it. And one of the elders, according to him, was very candid with him and said, maybe you can do it and you're just lazy. Now, you've got to have a pretty good relationship with somebody to say that, right? And I think he did because uh, Pastor Begg said, maybe I am. How would we know? So they put together a plan and they did an assessment of of Alistair Begg, and I think they even got somebody professional involved, and, and the professional came back and gave a report to the elders and said, Alistair Begg is not lazy. He's a very hardworking man. He's got a great work ethic, but he's focused. 
on the Word of God and prayer. And when he has an opportunity to choose between doing the Word of God and prayer and sitting in a meeting about a dumpster, he chooses the ministry of the Word and prayer every time. And so that may look to you as laziness, but he actually has a very good work ethic. He puts a lot of time into what he's doing, and he does it with great aptitude. So the professional said to them, look, you can, you've got two choices you can make here. You can fire Alistair Begg, and you can hire a pastor that's more CEO-ish and can do a lot more of this administrative stuff. That's option one. Or option two is you can, you can recognize that this is the way that God has gifted him, and you can hire someone who's more gifted at administration to supplement his needs, to supplement the church. And so while you've probably heard about Alistair Begg and, and you maybe have listened to his radio show, Truth For Life, you've probably never heard of Jeff Mills, and this is the biggest picture I could find of him. If I make it any bigger, it will pixelate so badly, you won't even know it's a guy. But Jeff Mills is the director of ministry. He's been on staff for about 30 years. He came from the accounting world, and he is the guy that makes sure that the dumpster gets emptied so that Alistair Begg and the elders can focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. Last point, changes to preserve the mission are made to get results, should be made to get results. We're not promised results, but that's what we're aiming at, right? In other words, God gives the increase. It's, it's up to God, but they should be made, the changes that we think about, the changes that we make should be made in such a way to get Results. Verse 7 says, and the word of God continued to increase. See, I don't think that the star of this passage, the main focus of this passage is deacons, although deacons are part of the solution. And I don't think it's widows, although widows are the presenting problem. I think the star, the, the main thrust of this passage is the ministry of the word of God in prayer. Look what it says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God continued to increase. They, first, back to 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7, Paul says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. Well, guess what? If Paul doesn't plant and Apollos doesn't water, can God give the growth? Yeah, God can do anything that he wants. But this seems to indicate the way that God works on the earth. They saw multiplication. Oops, I, there it is, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7. They saw multiplication. The word of God was multiplying. How is that possible when you only have 12 men? Well, they were probably practicing 2 Timothy 2, 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so they were probably identifying Others that could participate in the ministry of the Word of God in prayer and equipping them to do so. And perhaps some of those men who were faithful men came from the ranks of the deacons. And then it says, even priests. These men that were Levites, that were in the ministry of the temple, of helping people make their sacrifices and representing them to God. These people were hearing about the word of God, what Jesus had done, and they were becoming obedient to the faith. It reminds me of Philippians 4, or sorry, Philippians 1, 12 to 14, 
where uh, they took Paul, right, and they locked him up in prison. And Paul says, well, that's okay, because now all the guards are hearing and coming to faith. Can't stop the Word of God. If you got one person who's, uh, who's going to proclaim it, it's going to go out. I'm done. Let me just wrap this up. The question that we talked about today, the big question is, uh, was... What should be done when the main mission of the church is being compromised by problems associated with growth? And the answer is pretty simple. When the main mission of the church is in danger of compromise, make changes. That's it. I am keenly aware that our church is different than a church of 100 people, is different than a church of 50 people, is different than Parkside, which is a church of 5,000 people. The way the government structure, or the 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 Constitution is set up, the way they're governed, they're all different. I've been part of a church. Uh, my wife, when I started going to church with her as a youth, there was, what, 17 people in the church. Things just got done organically because when one got together, it seemed like they all got together, right? Everybody knew what was going on at all times with 17 people in the church. But at Parkside, that's not the case with 5,000 people, so they have to do things differently. How should, that, how should each church work? There's a lot of freedom in God's Word, and it's, it's going to depend on, are we going to focus on the ministry of the Word and prayer, and how are we going to do that given the size that we are? So you've got to be wise, right? Back to the dumpster. Eh, forget about the dumpster. Imagine if the, the, the 12 had pulled off of the ministry and decided to form a working group to figure out how to feed widows in Jerusalem, Christian widows. Today, we may have a very good widow feeding organization. Scratch that. I, I'm pretty sure that the church would be gone. Because how, how do we make new disciples? We make them through the preaching of the Word of God and prayer. And so it's, it's critically important that we understand that we, we must create our systems, our procedures, our constitution, all has to focus around the ministry of the Word of God in prayer. So here's a few questions to wrestle with as we leave today. Number one, what is our church configured for? This is a, this is a deep question, right? If somebody from the outside looked in and they looked at Delaware Bible Church and what we do and where where we spend our time and, and effort and where we put our money, what would they say this church is configured to get done? Would they say, would they conclude, this church is all about the ministry of the Word of God and prayer? Yes, yes, they have a dumpster, but there's a person taking care of that so that the primary thrust can be on the ministry of the Word of God and prayer in our church and in our school. But more penetratingly, what is your life configured for? Because if, you're, if somebody objectively, a third party, looked at your life and said, this person's life is configured really for the purpose of being a Cincinnati Bengals football fan or a Purdue Boilermaker basketball fan, if that's what your life is configured for, if that's what it looks like your life is configured for, 
we are in trouble. We, we are not doing this right. Young people, oftentimes I find that young people configure their life for what I call the template. What's the template? Well, you, you, you get good grades in high school so that you can get into a good college. You, you go to a college, you select a major that's, that makes a, a good amount of money, and you work hard and you study hard to, to, to graduate in that major. You, you work hard to get a good job. You buy a house, you get married, you have some kids. You save up for retirement, you retire, and you move to Florida. None of those things are bad in and of themselves unless that becomes what the point of your life is. Then it becomes a problem. The ministry of the word and prayer. What is your role? What is your role in the ministry of the word of God and prayer? It may be a supporting role. Somebody who's taking care of the widows. Knowing that by me taking care of these widows... Maybe once in a while I'll get an opportunity, but by me caring for this ministry, I'm releasing the folks in our church that are gifted and called to preach the to practice the ministry of the Word of God in prayer. I'm releasing them to do that unfettered. I'm going to do it. I'm going to carry out my ministry in such a way that they don't even have to worry about it. And then, thirdly and finally, what changes are you willing to make or support so focus can rest on the ministry of the Word and prayer? These are just some things to think about. I called the, the name of the sermon this morning Critical Course Corrections because you could see that the, 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 the 12 were in danger of having their course altered and dragged off into this side issue of the widows and they corrected very quickly and kept the focus like Jesus did on the ministry of the word and prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the reality of the gospel that your son Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for our sins, and that anyone who places their faith in him will be saved. Father, that is a message that needs to get out there. And that is a, a, not just that, but the richness and fullness of every jot and every tittle that's con contained in your word needs to, to be known. And so, Father, help us to be about your work of getting the ministry of the word going in prayer, uh, for your honor and your glory, knowing that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. We thank you for that reality. We thank you for the gift of knowing that when this life is over, our place with you is secure forever. And so now, Father, you've challenged us to think about these things. So let us examine ourselves and let us examine the ministry of Delaware Bible Church and make the necessary course corrections. In Jesus' name, for his glory, amen.